The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, we're back for They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 92, and we're still on an extended kick of crime films up to episode 100, which will be our commentary track for the original Night of the Living Dead. I'm your host, Lee, kind of funny-looking Russell, joined by my co-host, Daniel, your darn tootin' Harper. How you doing, sir? I am uh, rapidly scribbling out serial numbers on a notepad as we speak. Ah, Excellent. (laughs) <laughs> and we are joined by our special guest, returning special guest, Jack. I guess you think you're, you know, like an authority figure with that stupid fucking uniform, huh, buddy? Graham, how are you doing, sir? Not bad, not bad. I've had an exhausting day feeding my best friend into a wood chipper, so a bit uh, tired. Yeah, I imagine that would take a while. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a really fucking difficult job, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can see all the trouble he's having with the leg. So. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite Imagine... bit of that is the way that the leg is bouncing up and down and he's mm-hmm. got like a piece of uh, lumber he's just like trying to shove the leg in that that always amuses me yeah and if you hadn't guessed by that we are covering fargo and of course if you hadn't read the title because you know you're a functioning human being and you clicked on it when you're uh, downloading this podcast but yes we're going to be looking at fargo from 1996 we have no comments or questions although i invited people to put comments on a post under our facebook site but uh you know yeah we can talk about first before we get into the film anything we've watched in the last little while and because jack is our exalted guest uh i'll we'll let him go first oh thanks right okay the most recent new thing i've seen was miss peregrine's home for peculiar children the latest film by the increasingly terrible director tim burton and it's one of the worst films i've ever seen it's <laughs> It's extraordinarily bad. It, it just, it's, I mean, I wasn't expecting all that much because I read the book that it's based on and the book that it's based on is twee and naff and kind of dull and, and stupid. But, you know, I thought, well, you know, because I didn't go to the cinema either. So I waited for the DVD and along it came and I wasn't expecting much and I was disappointed, even even <laughs> not expecting much. He managed to make it worse than the book. It's it's really terrible. It wastes Eva Green. It wastes Judy Dench. It wastes Samuel L. Jackson. It's really, really bad. And it's very confusing as well. I defy anybody to walk out of that film on one viewing and tell me what the fuck happened at the end. <laughs> I I feel really confused knowing that Samuel L. Jackson is in that film. I mean, I know the joke is that he's in everything, but really, he's in that? Mm. Yeah, he's the baddie in that. Oh, okay. There is there is one good bit in the film, which because of course the, the thing that Tim Burton used to be good for was you know cheerful grotesquery, cheerful morbid imagery, you know. And there's one bit in the film where the ba- which is not in the book actually, where the baddies do something. I won't spoil it for anybody who might be tempted to watch this, despite the fact that I've told you it's awful. Um, but it's it, there's there's a good visual where they do something absolutely incredibly uh, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from, apart from that, it's got none of the old Burton sparkle whatsoever. Yeah, that sucks. Oh, and the other thing I watched recently was Logan. I went to the movies to see Logan because I have a 
I have a serious soft spot for the the Wolverine character, um, despite the fact that I've you know all sorts of problems with the X Men movies, and that was okay. That that was it wasn't bad. You know, I mean, there's there's lots of sort of rave reviews going around. I think they're overdoing it a bit. If you've seen Firestarter or Stranger Things, for that matter, or Starman, or or, or what was that other thing with um, oh, what was it called? Midnight's Midnight Special. Oh, Midnight Special, um, yeah. Yeah, any of those movies about a supernaturally gifted child being chased on a road trip around America by, you know, sinister establishment agents and the one or two adults who are trying to save them. If you've seen that movie and they've made it several times, as I say, then you don't really need to bother seeing Logan. But even so, it was it was an amusing enough two hours, you know. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned all those other films. It's it's almost become a subgenre upon itself, hasn't it? It's just mm-hmm. Well, yeah. you, forgot and Logan. The, you forgot the masterpiece of the genre, which was Mercury Rising, starring Bruce Willis. There's a reason we forgot that one. <laughs> yeah, there is a very good reason I forgot that. <laughs> Just, I have seen it. I forgot it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I blotted it out. Let Logan hits all the marks. Okay, for that for that subgenre, all of them, like dutifully hits them all. It does a couple of other things too, which make I'd say it's it's worth seeing, you know. But cool. um, yeah, it's very much in that subgenre. Yeah, that's definitely one I've been wanting to watch. It's not bad. It's got you know, it's got uh, Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart, Richard E. Grant. It's got some good performances in it. I'll, I'll say that. Right on. Uh, what about you, Daniel? Anything you've watched in the last little while? Sure. I actually watched on Netflix the uh, TV series, the American Crime Story, uh, uh, the trilogy Simpson. Okay. Uh, which oh, yeah. the the first episode or two of that are actually really good. This is uh, really weird because the first time I came on this podcast, that was what I'd just been watching. Oh, really? Yeah, mm. back oh, when I... we did uh, Blood Simple and Blue Velvet. <laughs> well, you know, something about crime films, I guess, just makes me. Oh, yeah, I should, I should uh, pick that up. But uh, no, I, I did uh, just kind of put it on like late one night. Um, you know, just kind of started watching it and uh, watched through to the ends because I couldn't remember how it ended. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I really, I was riveted by the. Uh, uh, I thought the first two episodes were really quite good. I mean, then once it gets into more of the trial stuff, it's sort of, it's it's kind of hemmed in by the realities of, of trying to just do the story as it was. And it just sort of becomes, incre- like, re- if you if you remember this from 20 years ago, then uh, we're just going to hit all the high points for you. You know, that, that's sort of the, that's sort of the, 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 uh, the experience of watching it for me was like, oh, right, the gloves, they didn't fit. And, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's some uh there's some fu- there's some really great performances in it. I think Courtney B. Vance is really good. Sarah Paulson is amazing in it as uh, Marsha Clark. Um I think Cuba Gooding Jr. is uh, underrated. I mean, I've seen some kind of iffy uh, notices on him for uh, that, but I think he's quite good as OJ. Um again, particularly in those first couple episodes which are really much more focused on the crime. What I think is interesting is that this is uh, produced by Ryan Murphy, who also does the American Horror Story series. I've watched a bit of that. I'm kind of a casual fan of that show. Um, in the sense that, like, if it's on, I will sit and watch it, but I don't care about it at all. That's a show that's, like, all full of pulpy fun, and we're just going to go balls to the wall out with as much as we can get away with, and lots of sex and sleaze and violence, and, you know, people getting murdered and deformity and all that sort of thing. I would love to see Ryan Murphy really go, like, nuts with a the crime series. It looks like they're they're in production on three more seasons in addition to this first one. And it, they're basically just going to be doing true true crime stories and like very like high media saturation true crime stories at that. Yeah. So I don't really know what the point of it is. I really think like let's do let's do some crazy like crime stories in this kind of genre, but do it with like Ryan Murphy's little uh, imagination there. That would be much more interesting than uh, what we're getting from it. But um, I thought it was the pretty next, good. The next series is going to be about Hur- Hurricane Katrina. 
isn't it? Um, which make which makes me very nervous. A crime series about Hurricane Katrina, uh, oh. because I bet they're going to focus on the wrong crime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny, uh, the bad lieutenant port of call, New Orleans. That was set right after Katrina, I believe. Yeah, I think that was the one it's set after. Yeah. Also, a David Simon did a series called Dream, which was set in New Orleans uh, around that time. It's a tempting area. To, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. But I have no uh, sense from um, anything in, that Ryan Murphy's ever done that this is going to be in any way a sensitive treatment of this topic. Uh, no. I, I think it's a really interesting thing to bring up, actually, because it's, you know, we're talking about the, the genre of true crime, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what that's what Fargo is, ostensibly. Um, yes. But it's, it's interesting what you say about the, the American Crime Story series. You know what they should do is sort of the crime version of the American Horror Story series, and, and what that is is it's taking the tropes and the and the different subgenres of horror and just doing them, as you say, balls to the wall. You know, total. It's schlock-tastic just it's just kind of mixing them together in a blender and yeah. then like look at what comes out, and it's yeah. I'd, uneven I'd be much but more fun, interested. You know? I'd be much more interested in the American Crime Story series if it was fictional, taking that tactic with the genre of the crime story. You know, well, doesn't one of the seasons of American Horror Story actually do that? With uh, what was that serial killer uh, Holmes who had the murder hotel? Yeah, but it doesn't because it's like no. very loosely based on. Uh, oh, okay. It's, it's 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 like they took that as an inspiration and then went off and did this like ghost story mystery. I actually watched most of that season because my wife got really into it. Yeah, I haven't no. seen that yet. I've only seen the first three. Yeah, I've seen uh, bits of kind of all of it. Really, freak show season and then the uh, hotel season are the only ones that I've seen any appreciable percentage of. The hotel season was definitely I, I quite enjoyed it. I was I was kind of watching it despite myself almost. You know, mm-hmm. like I actually got interested in that one for for uh, a good length of it. Because um, that that is an interesting story. I think I think it's. Leonardo DiCaprio that's in the works of trying to do a film version of that, I think. Oh good. Well that's gonna yeah. that's gonna go that's gonna go really well. Yeah. 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 That'll be fine uh, then. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Tim anything Burton else? to direct. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus, no. Well you, you know it's gonna be Scorsese. <laughs> well, at least he can rein him in a little bit. Yeah. So. Uh yeah, the only other thing I watched was uh Super. Uh, this is the Rain Wilson James Gunn film, uh, All right. from uh, I guess 2005 or 2006, something like that. Um, and that was uh, again just on Netflix, and uh, I realized I never wa- I never sat down and watched it, and uh, I sat down and watched it, and wow, this is a uh, not nearly as dark as I was expecting it to be. Like all the reviews at the time kind of treated it as like, oh, it's like hyper violent. I didn't think it was. I mean, it's it's got a lot of blood in it, but it's certainly not as dark and interesting as sort of the the reviews made it sound and it's ultimately just a big metaphor for a guy learning to let go of his wife when she goes to be with someone else which is kind of a weird sort of thing i don't know it's it's very james gunn probably worth talking about at length at some point because i think it is a really interesting film but it's far from a great film and i'm not even sure it's a good film Hmm. have you seen it no, I haven't seen it, but I do know that uh, that podcast I've been listening to lately, uh, Movie Sign with the Mads, they just covered it recently and said it was really good. So I haven't been interested in seeing it. Well, uh, we might have to do that with Kick-Ass because sort of it came out around the same time and it's sort of the, uh, the less overtly comic booky Kick-Ass or the less you know, overtly violent or, or action-oriented version of Kick-Ass. And they have some of the same problems. <laughs> That's uh, but yeah, no, uh, it's it's uh, worth checking out if you're if you haven't seen it, and uh, I guess we're gonna cover that at some point since 
Uh, we're both at least vaguely interested in talking about it. So yeah, yeah, somewhere down the road, sometime in I'll 2019, make... you know. Yeah, somewhere around. Based there. on our schedule these days. <laughs> yeah, I only have a couple things I'll mention. Uh, really briefly, I watched this film called Kill Command on Netflix. It's this uh, sci-fi. It's the usual sort of. A typical story of robots gone haywire. In this case, it's Marines get called to a training mission on an island only to find that it was the robots that called them. And the robots are ostensibly the replacement units that are being tested out to replace the human army. But uh, these have gone rogue. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of typical stuff, nothing new. But it's actually pretty well done for what it is. In part, it's almost a slasher movie to a certain degree. For a little while, the action scenes are competently done. The acting is good for what little the characters are actually given. And uh, there's an interesting ending with uh, sort of ends on an interesting question. So uh, it's actually kind of worth checking out if you have some time to kill on Netflix and you want a decent little sci-fi. It's not Edge of Tomorrow, but nothing else really is these days. So, (laughs) you know, the other thing I watched, uh, Death Race 2050, which is basically just a total remake of the original Death Race. It's way better than that Death Race remake series that was uh, in movies for a little while there. I think the first one had Jason Statham in it, and then there was a couple really shitty ones after that. But this is actually pretty good. It's not a bad update on Death Race. It sort of makes it a little bit more topical, kind of updates some of the social issues and stuff like that. It doesn't really hit the targets all that uh, cleanly, I guess, is the best way to say it. But it's entertaining enough, and the characters are entertaining enough some good stunt work, some good action scenes, probably, honestly, some better action scenes than what you see in the original Death Race. So that, again, is just an interesting diversion on Netflix if you have the time. It's it's kind of worth checking out. Uh, it's way better than it has any right to be, anyway, for being a latter-day Roger Corman production that's just cashing in on something he already did, which has been his pretty much his career for the last 40 50 years now. So. <laughs> and the only other thing I watched, uh, I watched the entire Iron Fist Marvel series. It's been getting really mid- middling to terrible reviews. I think a lot of them had to do with the fact that most of the reviewers were given an advanced screening of, I think, seven episodes of the 13. And the series honestly doesn't start getting interesting until about episode eight. So that's that kind of... <laughs> That kind of shot it down <laughs> for 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 everybody. That being said, it's not great. It's very much uh, entitled whiny uh, white superhero comes home and whines and has angst and and spouts a lot of mystical bullshit. Everyone else around him is much better. The lead is not very good in his martial arts scenes. You can tell they're shooting around his ineptness. Whereas you watch the other martial arts scenes with the other characters, and you can see they're you know they're totally at ease at it and you don't see their obvious stunt doubles all the time so from your summary it sounds like they just saw dr strange and thought that's so good we want to make our tv show just like that sort of yeah it's definitely not as interesting as dr strange but it, it does tap into the same area of the marvel universe as dr strange does and i think the biggest problem is it just takes too long to get going so when it finally starts getting interesting, you only got like three episodes left in the in the fucking series. So uh, it, it, it feel it, it feels a little anticlimactic when it when it ends. But for what it's worth, it started to uh, start started to grow on me. Not unlike uh, mold culture of some sort, but uh, it started <laughs> to grow on me anyway. And I did end up enjoying it overall. Uh, but I, it is definitely the lesser of the series. You, you spend any anything like that amount of time with anything, you kind of 
you have so much invested in it, don't you, that you kind of think there must be something here. You get attached to it just because you put so much time and effort into it. Well, I don't know. I I didn't binge this one, so it it was over. It was over like a period of a week that I watched it on and off, so it wasn't that bad. But um, you maintain yeah. some outside perspective. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, overall, I enjoyed it. it. It's it's definitely worth checking out again. It's just an, it seems like a theme with me this this time out, but it's just one of those diversions on Netflix. It's not a must see. I mean, you don't need to see this to appreciate any of the other series in the in the Marvel uh, Netflix canon right now. And honestly, it feels like half of this was just a vehicle to okay, here's our other Defender. Now let's do the Defender series. Yeah, I, I have a feeling there may not be a series two for Iron Fist, whereas Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, and Daredevil all sort of earn their second series you know yeah i i think so i haven't seen iron fist but i i know that a lot of the the flack it's been getting has been comparing it to the other series and i think to be honest people have been overrating the other series uh, i think the only the only one of well I, I i did like daredevil and jessica jones a lot actually luke, luke cage less so although i liked a lot of things about it but there's a lot of people talking about these things like they're you know modern masterpieces and i i don't think right. that's quite true Except yeah. maybe maybe of Jessica Jones in some ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there's the tendency, especially I think superhero fans, fans of the films and stuff, they get a little defensive, and they some I think sometimes you have that sort of fans piling on, trying to make things so much more important and better than they really really are. Like I think some of the critical acclaim of Logan probably comes from that as well. Where yeah, yeah, I agree. There, there's definitely that aspect to it, but I mean, they're enjoyable stuff, and they're generally better than uh, a lot of stuff that's coming out of the Marvel movies as of late. Especially oh, yeah. since, especially after the wake of Guardians of the Galaxy, which kind of shocked everybody with how good it actually was, and <laughs> now they've been playing center on that one. <laughs> ah, well, I, I don't, I don't rate Guardians of the Galaxy at all. But oh, fair enough. But uh, I, I think I, I feel like uh, the rest of the Marvel stuff now has been trying to play catch up ever since. So, so <clears throat> one of the things with the TV series is that they're surprisingly good based on how bad the movies have gotten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's it's like the the you know yeah. I think I think really the the high point of the Marvel films was probably uh, I mean the Avengers for me. I mean, I think that one really came out of nowhere as being, you know, how could this possibly even be decent? And then when it was as entertaining as it was, despite being mostly vapid and empty, I mean, I think, you know, five years later, it's a lot easier to kind of look at that and go, what exactly was this trying to say? Uh, not not a whole lot. Um, there's, yeah. there's nothing there. No, yeah, literally there, nothing. There, there's, little, there's literally no semantic content at all, you know. Um, and then, <laughs> so so to, uh, I mean, you know. And, and, it's well uh, made, but it's nothing. <laughs> right, I mean, but that's exactly what, I mean, that's what, you know, four-quadrant entertainment just kind of is at this point. And so when you kind of look back and you go, um, you look at something like Jessica Jones, and you go, wow, this has a theme and yeah. a story and interesting characters. What is this? I don't know what I don't know what this means. Um, but then why didn't anybody involved in, you know, making the Marvel Cinematic Universe have the same moment looking at Mad Max Fury Road? You know, we could we could be doing better than this and still be making lots of money. Why didn't that happen? Or except maybe it did, and maybe you know, Age of Ultron was their attempt to do that, which is a scary thought. Oh, Jesus Christ! And then, Does and anybody sad... give a shit about that film? I, I mean, haven't no. seen it. No, and you no, don't need I... to see it. No, you don't. Seriously, I, and I, I decided to give up on that on the on the uh, high point. You know, um, yeah. Just, I just mean... kinda, I'm, I'm done. Like, I don't, I don't, I, I'm kind of. I've moved on from caring about that franchise. Yeah. Well, yeah. Partly, I, th- I think 
in in some cases they don't care because even with something like Age of Ultron, they still made so much money off it that it's like they well, yeah, so they don't care. we we can't fail. We obviously can't fail. So <laughs> hey, why not? Yeah. Mm. Hence the the incredible lack of effort that went into Captain America: Civil War. Yeah, I've never seen a blander blockbuster than that. Yeah, and every time every time someone t- tells me how good it was, it's like, well, didn't you see that scene where all the heroes fought in the uh, airport? Yeah, that was like five minutes or something out of the whole movie. Where was the other two hours? Yeah, what was, but what's what was going I mean, on there? We, we've all seen them do their shtick. What, yeah. Why does it make it better that they're doing it against each other? I mean, is it because they're such complex characters that such emotional resonance is thereby generated that no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. No, and I'm tired. Of, I'm tired of seeing them fighting too. I it just it just worries me that the reason they're all fighting and in conflict with each other is because uh, at the end of the day, uh, Thanos is going to be such a wet fart of a villain that <laughs> they need something else to keep the series going. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like the whole thing with the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe is just that the, the fandom is more interesting than the than the material itself. The text itself is just sort of like bland and, and whatever, but uh, the uh, the young fans that kind of bring their own interpretations to it and, and different twists and different readings, that's way more interesting to me. So I, I'm almost a fan of the uh, the universe just because I'm a fan of the fandom in, in a weird way. But even then, I, don't, I think that most of the fans have just kind of uh, dropped a lot of the... Uh, a lot of yeah, they're basically still working on the stuff that was going on, you know, three or four years ago. Um, yeah, they've, they've just kind of stopped caring about what's going on in the in the kind of the the actual text at this point. Well, um, I, the character of Iron Man is still coasting on the goodwill from the first film, isn't yes. it? Because nothing that's come since has been anything up to that quality. I mean, th- three clawed back a little bit of the cred, but no, you know, it's still basically coasting on the cred from the first one, which is what two thousand and eight. Yeah, mm-hmm. I actually like three better than one. There's I like a, things about three a lot. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a reason they're still paying Robert Downey Jr. exorbitant amounts of money and and relenting to any desire that he has because yeah. he made that entire franchise on that performance alone. So yeah, and none of the others really have any, anything. I mean, you wouldn't have a film series starring what's the guy's name who plays Cap. Chris oh, Ryan, Chris Evans. Chris, Chris Evans. Evans. You, you know, you wouldn't have a standalone franchise with that guy as the as the keystone of it. He's okay. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with him, but the but whole he... thing is anchored by Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man. And as I say, he's still coasting on the goodwill left over from nearly ten years ago. Yeah, because Captain America needs a foil. He need he needs someone to mm. you know be criticizing him is what he needs. And yeah. but then yeah. even when they make an entire film about that, those two fighting each other, it's boring. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully that that's that's the only one, but of course it won't be. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what's you interesting know... to me about those films is the way they're constantly sort of at war with their source material. You know, because the source yeah. material is so inherently daft and over the top, to, over the top and camp, and they they want to be colourful and exotic and and you know full of incident and funny and tongue in cheek, but they also want to be serious. You know, yeah. so they're constantly sort of trying to parlay these comic book concepts into things that are simultaneously multicolored and spangly and kind of serious. You know, you want to be able to take right. them seriously. So the way they have to they have to kind of translate every comic book concept into something that looks enough like it that they can say we've been loyal, but is also different so that they can get away with it in the modern language of how movies work. That That is interesting to me as a sort of textual game. 
to yeah. watch it happening. And I'm totally cool with that too because comic books are so incredibly bad at being consistent over the years mm. anyway that uh, they're they're just totally open for reinterpretation all the time because that's all oh, comics sure. do, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can move on from these uh, these uh, <laughs> these fripperies, these these talks of, uh, of of superheroes, and then we can move on to uh, temperatures sub zero. Find out that... that the real superhero was a pregnant woman all along. Yeah. Mmm, <gasps> great coffee. Mmm. Hey. Chad, who's that strange, somber man on the cover of that book you're reading? Oh, that's H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, I've heard of him, but I never really got into his stuff. It's kind of strange and hard to read. Oh, I used to think that, too. But that all changed when I started listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. What's that? The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is a weekly podcast. Tell me more. These two really smart and hilarious guys give a synopsis of the story, then they talk about its background, the critical views, and what it says about the author. Well, where can I listen? Let me tell you, Chris, you can go to hppodcraft.com or, heck, just subscribe through iTunes. It's that easy. Oh, Chad, I'm so excited. Now I can listen to this podcast and pretend to all my snooty friends that I actually read and understand H.P. Lovecraft. Hey, that's what I do. <laughs> oh, dear. Hello, and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I am Richard... And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, bark, bark. <laughs> and he said, bark, bark, bark. And she said, bark, 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 bark. That's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner. The other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> the boner of tears. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, This is the Doomed Show is available on hellodoomedshow.podomatic.com and doomedmoviethon.com. Hello, hello, this is the Doomed Show, Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. It's the Doomed Show. Hello, hello, this is the Doomed Show, slashes, G.I. Low and Horror. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick. <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark. If you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com.
Pirates. We're going to be talking about Fargo from 1996. I'm uh, Jerry Lundegaard. Got the car? You bet. Brand new burnt umber Sierra. You want your own wife kidnapped. Her dad, he's real well off. So why don't you just ask him for the money? Ah! See, these are personal matters. Personal matters? Wait, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. We gotta talk. It's something for Jeez, It's terrible. Oh, I got the state looking for a Sierra with a tag starting DLR. Sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lil. I think that vehicle there probably had dealer plates. Jeez. DLR? No, they said no cops. Here's the second one. So we got a trooper pull someone over. This a new car then, sir? Oh, it certainly is, officer. Still got that smell. There's a high-speed pursuit. We got a shooting. And then this execution-type deal. Million dollars, a lot of damn money. They got my daughter. Bye, hon. Brought you some lunch, Margie. What are those, night crawlers? Oh, yeah, look pretty good. How's Jean? Who's Jean? My wife. <laughs> well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. You were having sex with a little fella then. Yeah. Mr. Lundegaard, mind if I sit down? Trying quite a load here. Where's Jerry? Got your damn money. Now, where's my daughter? Shit. We don't want the entire 80,000. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here. You have no call to get snippled with me. I'm just doing my job here. <gasps> what do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? Police! <laughs> so, is there anything else you can tell me about him? He wasn't circumcised. Oh, yeah? Directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, starring Francis McDermott as Marge Gunderson, William H. Macy as Jerry Lundengard, Steve Buscemi as Carl Showalter, Peter Stromer as Gear Grimsrund, I probably pronounced that incorrectly, Kristen Rudrud, really that's her name, Rudrud? Okay, Rudrud. as Gene <laughs> Lundengard, John Carroll Lynch as Norm Gunderson, Harv Persnell as Wade Gustafson, and Steve Revis as Shep Proudfoot, and I'll let you take the synopsis there, Daniel. Visually, it's Lawrence in North Dakota. Thematically, it's Neonor executed by a cadre of completed competence. The film opens as a quiet middle manager of a car dealership meets with two men who will do harm to others for money. Carl is a nervous, talkative, excitable, while Grimsrude barely speaks a word. They have been waiting an hour for the appearance of the mousy man, and have accumulated six empty beer bottles between them. The middle manager, who we might as well go ahead and acknowledge his name Jerry Lundegaard and is portrayed by William H. Macy, has put together a scheme that the excitable tough guy, played of course by Steve Buscemi, because this is an indie film made in 1996, flat out says <laughs> doesn't make any sense. He wants the two men to kidnap his own wife for a ransom of $80,000, of which they would get half, in addition to a brand new burnt umber Sierra paid to them up front. <laughs> And so the film unspools as we learn more about the principles involved. Jerry, desperate for cash for unspecified reasons, is involved in some kind of insurance fraud which netted him $320,000, but which has officials from GMAC hounding him, and is simultaneously shopping a deal on a brand new car lot to his father-in-law, Wade Gustafson, worth three quarters of a million dollars. The kidnapping scheme, by this standard, seems to be just an extension of these principles by other means. The odd couple, tough guys, on the other hand, bicker in their own way over pancakes, television, and women, but manage to kidnap Jerry's wife with little incident until on the drive back to their hideout they are stopped by a cop on routine patrol due to not having a valid license plate. This incident leads to not just the murder of the patrol officer, but two innocents who happened to drive by as the first murder was being cleaned up. 
The triple homicide gets our local police chief, Marge Gunderson, involved, who may be seven months pregnant, but who is clearly the most intelligent, capable person in the film. Her efforts are less brilliant deduction than the systematic chasing down of leads, but her basic competence leads her to immediately surmise the basic details behind the crime scene itself, and then gradually trace the movements of the principals back to their source, through phone logs and what the internet cannot decide are prostitutes or merely very friendly girls. Either way, given that the sum total of the physical description they provide is that the little guy was kind of funny looking, Marge clearly has her work cut out for her. In the end, lots of people end up dead. As Jerry's father-in-law, Wade, doesn't trust Jerry to do the muddy exchange himself, not unreasonably given that Jerry is offering the criminals 40000 of a million dollar payout, and Wade <laughs> ends up in Jerry's trunk. As a further result of the, that exchange, Carl has the entire bag full of money, the excess of which he buries in stone side of the highway somewhere, and a really nasty face wound for his trouble. He takes the rest of the cash to Grimm's Rude, finding him idly watching TV and eating cereal beside Jerry's wife with her head in an oven. After an exchange during which Carl berates Grimm's Rude for not pulling his weight, Carl ends up at a wood shepherd, just as Marge catches up on the Duro, puts a bullet in Grimm's Rude as he attempts to escape, and arrests the quiet but violent Nordic man. And all of this was over just a little bit of money, which is a shame on such a beautiful day. <laughs> nice. Okay, Jack, we'll go to you for your initial thoughts on this one. It's difficult not to run straight on to the big stuff but i mean this is this is it's not controversial to say that this is a great movie i think this is an acknowledged classic it's one of the i mean even if you don't like it you have to acknowledge that most people think it's 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 a significant film it's one of the coen brothers best films i would say maybe not their best but certainly one of their best and like a lot of their top tier films it's kind of it's still recognisably a Coen Brothers film, but it's also in some ways quite different to the rest of their work. One way in which it is like their work is that it's a game with genre. But a lot of people seem, again, the internet uh, seems a bit unable to decide this, you know, what kind of a game with genre it is. I think it's actually fairly straightforward. You know, Miller's Crossing is a game with the gangster genre. The Big Lebowski is a game with the Raymond Chandler type thriller genre. Right. This is a game with the true crime genre. I mean, it's pretty open about that, I think, when it says at yeah. the start this is based on a true story, uh, which, of course, it isn't, except in some very tenuous ways. It's playing at being like a Hallmark TV movie based on a Anne Rule book about a real crime. I think that's what it's doing. Mm -hmm. And it's doing some really, really interesting stuff in that framework, you know, brilliantly directed with this detached very steadily paced, very contained, enveloped style, brilliantly acted. You've got some unforgettable performances here by at least four people. The most unusual and in some ways the most lovable and heroic detective in modern crime fiction. I think there's a case for saying that. Um, mm -hmm. Gorgeous music by Carter Burwell. Just so many. It's one of those films that just burns moment after moment in your head. You know, it's just this is a film that just on a first viewing, you come away with certain images just burned in, into your brain forever. I think certainly I did when I saw this for the first time when sick and staying off, staying at home off from college. I, a friend of mine rented some films for me to watch during the day while I sat at home sick and they brought back this and Reservoir Dogs, and hmm. Seven. So I, <laughs> I, watched, I watched those three films in quick succession in the space of about six hours. Wow. And I came away most impressed by this one, which is significant, I think. Again, as I say, it's hard, to, it's hard not to jump to all the big points. I think it's a very moving film. I think it's a beautiful film. I think it's in some ways a very profound film. And it's, I think it's got to be one of my favorite films ever be honest right on uh daniel throw it over to you i agree with uh, pretty much everything that jack said i mean i agree with everything that jack said except i would i would probably rate it even higher i think this is 
it's the greatest of the Coen Brothers films that I've seen. There are, there are quite a few I haven't seen yet, but I've, there's none that I have seen that I have enjoyed more than this. There's none that I've seen that I've rewatched more than this, except for maybe Raising Arizona, and that's because I rewatched that a bunch as a kid. I adore this film. I adore almost every element of it. It's a small film. It's it's not, you know, watching it and and enjoying it. And, you know, this, this has a, you know, a six or seven minute scene in which Marge meets with an old high school friend over drinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is t- totally disconnected from the plot. That is one of the most vital th- scenes in the right. entire it, film. It, exactly, exactly. It, it's one of these films that has a crackerjack plot, and you don't realize how crackerjack it is until you sit down and try to synopsize it, <laughs> or at least until you try to figure out what's going on. This is something to where even just me sitting and describing everything that's going on in the film would take longer than the running time of the film, to its credit. And yet, um, it never feels like it's... Spoon feeding information. In fact, often it feels like it's it's sort of slow paced, leisurely paced. There are long shots of people just kind of walking through snow. It's funny that a film with this much violence and this much sort of thematic weight is also so enjoyable. It's amazing that it is able to kind of do this thing of being about these uh, kind of the rubes in northern, you know, in the in the North Midwest, Midwest, which uh, I think is one of the few. I mean, that's something that that you re- that really could have turned out very bad. Um, yeah. You know, oh, look at the Hollywood, you know, making fun of the uh, the, the rubes, you know, <laughs> in the snowy parts of the U.S. But um, really works very, very well. And I think that that's a very interesting tonal decision that they made on that. But it works completely on that level. I never feel like the film is really making fun of the people that are in the film, even right. when it's clearly kind of going, well, you know, they could be a little bit brighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very enjoyable, really interesting, thematically heavy. I want to put a particular note on the score just to uh, just to mention it. Uh, Jack's absolutely right. This is uh, one of one of my favorite scores not written by someone that you kind of think of as one of the great scoremeister people, you know? And this is a, a score that I, uh, this, this winter when I was driving to work, I would put on regularly on my drive through uh, the snowy Michigan uh, highways until uh, i realized i didn't need to do that because it was actually it was actively making my drive more stressful um which is not a good thing (laughs) when you're driving through terrible uh, michigan winters um, as i'm sure uh terrible north dakota winters um god i love this film i have i i have to literally go and look for negative things to say about this film that's how good this film is um and uh yeah that's my overall thoughts it's great i'd have to echo both these gentlemen's thoughts I find this film incredibly disarming on a couple levels. It's disarming to the viewer, and some of the characters in the in this are disarming as well uh, to one another. Uh, it, it's it's there's this really floaty, cloudy kind of lining around the film that doesn't ever allow itself to be dragged into the muck of the violence, like uh, even a previous uh, Coen's Brothers film would be, like uh, Blood Simple, which has much more nastier characters and dislikable characters who are, well, maybe not so much more dislikable, but they're played and presented in a different way than they are in this film, where you just you kind of enjoy watching them die and fuck each other over. And in this one, it's, I don't know, it, it just really does have that true crime, but TV movie version of true crime kind of thing, as Jack was saying. The the performances in this are great. Marge Gunderson is one of the great detective characters on screen. Um, she is alarmingly smart 
and disarmingly smart. I think the film is wonderful in the way it sets you up with that idea that, oh yeah, everyone here is a little bit simple, a little bit laid back. You might, it might even make you think, yeah, they're all rubes. And so you kind of expect that from her. But when you see how brilliant she actually is, uh, it makes the film so much more enjoyable, I think, when you sort of discover along with her all the things she's thinking. Like she's just constantly thinking in her head. And there is a key scene uh, that I think we'll get to that she makes a revelation and it just comes out of nowhere, but it's because she's so smart. She's always constantly thinking about things that she picks up on something she missed. And, and it's sort of the key to everything. Yeah. I love this film. I'll just throw it out there. People want to start throwing out their thoughts on this one. I want to come back to the idea of it as, as like a TV movie based on a true crime book, because mm-hmm. I think that's, that's definitely the, the sort of genre that they're playing with. They're playing with true crime as a genre. The, the thing about real crime is that it's squalid and stupid and messy and pathetic. It, 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 it ends badly. It yeah. ends you know, it, it, with an anticlimax almost all the time. You know, it's not like fictional crime. Fictional crime is kind of thrillingly you know, clever and well worked out and the people involved are all smart and imposingly scary. And, and um, you know, there's one person in Fargo who, you know, seems on the surface to be the stereotypical sociopath of, of, the, of the crime story. And that's Grimsrud. And he's I, I think what Peter Stormare is doing there is he's he's playing Grimsrud as trying to be that guy i i think grimsrud is is actively sort of trying to present himself as the scary silent imposing guy i i think he's actually trying to represent himself as a figure from fiction whereas what he actually is is a, a squalid pathetic little idiot who just you know kills people because they annoy him um yeah and I think that's what this film's getting at. This film is getting at something which is actually very true about real cases like this. Because, of course, horrible things like this do happen. This this film isn't directly based on any real crimes, but it's sort of... It draws on elements of a couple of real crimes. There was a guy called T. Eugene Thompson, who was a lawyer, I think, in... Uh, yeah, he was a lawyer in Minnesota, uh, which, of course, is where the Coens are from. Uh, who mm-hmm. hired a hitman to kill his wife. And there was also the case of Helle Crafts, who was fed into a wood chipper by her husband. Right. Uh, that happened in Connecticut. And those elements, they've, you know, they've been very inconsistent about what this film is based on. They've said it's based on this and then denied that it's based on that. And then yeah. they've said it's, it's based on aspects of this and then they've denied it's based on anything. And I don't know what they're up to there. But I, think, I don't think you can deny that the plot draws on some real crimes. And I think that's very deliberate because they're trying to get the sense of what real crimes like this are like. Because occasionally, crime is actually very rare, relatively speaking. But real crimes like this do sometimes happen. And when they happen, they're squalid and sad and messy and stupid and anticlimactic. You know, and it's done by stupid people because it's an inherently stupid act. You know, to to, yeah. to commit a crime like this is an inherently stupid thing to do. Not only not not only is it emotionally stupid because it's a catastrophic failure of empathy, um, it's it's just stupid on the most basic level, which is that the consequences of getting caught far outweigh the possible benefits of not getting caught, and you're you're very 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 likely to get caught. So it's an inherently dumb thing to do. So only really dumb. You know, people, apart from people who've got something wrong with them, you know, their empathy chip is malfunctioning. Just on a basic self-interest level, only really dumb people do this. So when it happens, it's as I say, it's messy and squalid and stupid, and it fails. And that's what they get at with this film because 
all the evil that happens in this film, and I feel perfectly comfortable using that word, by the way, that's what it is. It's just stupid. They just they, there's no there's not even any passion in this film. They don't commit any crimes out of passion. They commit crimes out of irritation or boredom or frustration or just anger. You know, the, um, Carl is pissed off about the money transfer going south, so he shoots the attendant at the car park. You know, that's right. so fucking stupid. It's just this great orgy of stupidity. People lashing out at each other for no reason at all, and the stupid plan going haywire because it's so badly thought out, and they haven't taken into account any of the various things that are obviously going to go wrong. And that's very, very true to life. Now, the thing about the true crime genre is that it deals with real cases, which, as I say, are v- just like this a lot of the time maybe not quite this hyped up but this is fiction so it's it's slight you know it's it's got to be a bit exaggerated in fact the heightened aspect is a vital part of how they create the feeling of realism true crime draws on stuff like this and when they turn it into tv movies they desperately try to deny the fact that these that these cases are, are grim and stupid and squalid and petty because they're trying to glam them up you know they cast rob lowe as a guy that kills his wife mm. you look at the actual the actual case it's a horrible squalid stupid petty mess of a thing and when you when they turn it into a tv movie they try to glam it up and make it sinister and make the guy scary and imposing and you know like hannibal lecter or something like that and i think that's what this film is i mean it's don't think it's the only thing it's doing but i think it's fundamentally what it's doing which is it's trying to subvert the way real crimes are themselves reinterpreted as something glamorous which they're resolutely not so that's where this film's key tactic comes from and that tactic is bathos that the you know the build up to something which is an anticlimax the depiction of something as anticlimactic as sort of failing at the last minute that's so unusual as as a tactic in in drama i think that's why it's another reason why it's so distinctive yeah, uh, you're you're totally right about the uh, the two criminals in this, uh, especially um, Grimsrud. He, uh, he is a psychopath, but he and uh, Steve Buscemi's character Carl, they're very much the same. They're both petty criminals, and they perceive society in a different way than you and I usually do. And they have this really, they seem to have this really inflated sense of entitlement to themselves, where. And any little uh, transgression against them is worth killing somebody over because it's that much of an insult to them. Whereas, you know, if a a guy at a fucking booth for a a, a toll booth, if he, you know, had to charge us $4 even though we didn't park there, we'd grumble about it, but we'd pay or get the cops involved or something like that. We wouldn't pull out our gun and shoot the guy, you know, or, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's fucking ridiculous in, in that sense. And Peter Stromer's character, he, he is a psychopath, but he is just killing out of irritation as well. People are just irritating him. And he, and you're right. I, I didn't think about it before, but now that you sort of describe that, it, it does feel like he is just kind of trying to play up that role as like the, the real tough, scary criminal guy, the, the big heavy that, uh, that he might have seen in a movie somewhere, and, and well, he, and he makes a he makes a point of of looking into the crashed car, doesn't he, and staring at mm-hmm. the woman in the car before he draws back and shoots her. Right, and I, I think I think the character gets off on moments like that. Because I, I think he sees himself as being, you know, like one of these. Well, I mean, the 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 thing to to compare, you know, it's like if you put him forward in time a bit, he's seen No Country for Old Men, and mm-hmm. he he liked the idea of being. Anton Chigurh. Yeah. In reality, you see the reality at the end of the film where he's just this pathetic psychopath yeah. uh, in his long johns trying to stuff his partner's last remains in a wood chipper. And yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, what does what does he do when he's left to his own devices? He sits in front of the telly and eats chips. You know, watches and, yeah, and watches watches Bruce Campbell on the uh, telly. In the old, uh... <laughs> he, he's watching yeah. soap operas and watching the uh, the wife. And then when um, she got annoying, or we don't. The thing is, a lesser version of this would show us the scene where mm-hmm. he kills her. But this film knows that that's not really the essential thing. The essential thing is he just killed her. Like it completely drains any kind of visceral pleasure would get out of the crimes. Yeah. out of the violence from yeah. the film, while at the same time heightening the sense of futility. Like, once these guys have got her, I mean, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the film, which I, I think you guys will agree with me, you may not, I don't know, but uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film is just after they park at the cabin, and she gets away for a second, and uh, they've got her hooded, and she's, she runs, and she, they just sit, and they just wait, because she's just going to run into something, or she's not, they know, like, there's nothing you can do here. Like, what are you going to, you know, like, you're not going to be able to escape from us. So they just let her wear herself out and then they just go get her because yeah. you're fucked. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. just the reality of this situation. That's and, right. um, you know, we're kind of programmed. Giggle. They, they giggle, giggle and, at her desperate it, attempts to escape. Well, well, uh, Stomer's character doesn't do anything. He just stares. And it's, it's, I think he's playing up his character there. Like, <laughs> he's trying to be the strong, silent guy. And you're almost expecting him to say, you're letting her get away. Uh, or something like that, you know, but he never does that. He just sits there and stares and lets lets Carl giggle because Carl takes pleasure in other people's pain when when he <laughs> when he can, you know, give give a little uh, needle back to uh, the society that has apparently been needling him all of his life or so he thinks anyway. When you have to think how do people get into this? I mean, they they get into it based on, you know, usually it's economics. Usually people who kind of get into this world they grow up in it or they grow up adjacent to it. Um, they need some money. They find an easy way to get it. They don't. They can't get normal jobs for whatever reason. Then they end up in the system, and then they really can't get normal jobs, so they just get stuck back into it. This is a uh, systemic problem, which I guess we'll end up covering at some point in this uh, podcast <laughs> series. And so when you when you think about the way that you know, again, the film isn't about that. The film doesn't. The film just no. presents us at, with these characters, which is to the strength of the film, is that it gives us just this portrait and then allows us to consider our own background for these people. But, yeah. Well, though, well, those. Uh, sorry to interrupt there, but those those characters they make a point of saying, well, though they're definitely not from Brainerd, you know, like so it, it's almost as, as if Brainerd couldn't produce people like this. But, yeah. You know, well, like, well, Bra- Brainerd <laughs> did though. Bra- Brainerd produced Jerry Lundegaard. Yeah, exactly. He, but, he but is as much no, no. a, a, a piece of from, shit as they are. Isn't he? He's in Minneapolis, though. Because they go to Brainerd. They go to Brainerd. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, they, sorry. The, the Lundegaard family live in Brainerd, don't they? Uh, right, right. right. Yes, they? Sure, right. But <laughs> but they they sort of they sort of uh, propagate this sort of uh, idea that maybe the people of the area have that oh nothing happens here. It's a sleepy town, you know. So th- these guys who committed these murder the murders uh, they're definitely not from Brainerd. You know, well, or... g- generally speaking, of course, things like that don't happen anywhere. You know, yeah. <laughs> whenever there's something like this, people always say, "Oh, things like this don't happen here." Well, no, you're right. Generally speaking, they don't. It's yeah. just every now and again they have to happen somewhere. Yeah. Have you guys seen In Cold Blood? Mm-hmm. Well, which which, which one? one? Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of the uh, the original. No, yeah. I haven't actually. The old one. Yeah. Uh... I read the book, of course. I've seen a I've seen a film version of it, but I haven't seen the original. I might I might be mistaking it with one of the two movies about Truman Capote writing In Cold Blood. Actually, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't aware there was a remake of In Cold Blood. I thought there was just the 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 original film from the uh, late sixties. Oh wait, I'm I'm getting confused. Is isn't aren't they both called The Killing? No, no, no. There's a film called In Cold Blood. Okay, 
Yeah, I must have. I must be thinking of the two because there, there were two a few years ago. They, there were two movies in quick succession came out about Truman Capote actually writing the book. One was called yeah. Capote, and one Capote. was called. The irony is that I haven't seen either of those films, but I have both read the original book and uh, seen the. Uh... One one was Philip Seymour Hoffman, the other one was uh, Toby Jones, wasn't Toby it? Toby Jones, that's yeah. right. And they're they're both actually very good in their different ways. Yeah, to my to my knowledge, there's only one film version of In Cold Blood. It's from '67. Okay, right. Um, I was thinking I, I was thinking it. of the killing. It's got Robert Blake in it, so. Um, yeah, yeah, I haven't, I seen, haven't that. seen that. So okay, so uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, lots of the thematic content of this reminds me of In Cold Blood, and we'll just leave it at that until we eventually okay. cover In Cold Blood. That works. Um, yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure this draws on In Cold Blood. Well, well, it, it's also in terms of some of the visuals and some of the. Uh, there's an accidental quality to so much of what happens in the film, um, and then the 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 way that the reason that the two people die. Uh, during the triple homicide is because they just happen to drive by and then Grimsrud just goes, well, fuck this, fuck this uh, little skinny little guy. I'm just going to go and kill these guys. You know, people kind of think, oh, I'm going to be a hero. If you're a, you know, gun culture in the U.S. is so based around this idea of like, I don't want to be defenseless, you know. But I mean, honestly, if you're in that situation, if you just happen to drive by this shooting, even if they had a gun in the cab of the truck, like you're fucked. I'm sorry. (laughs) This guy's this guy's going to murder you. I mean, you know. Yeah, especially if you're not willing to pull the trigger. Exactly. Like you've you've got to especially, you know, they just run off the road. I mean, if you're upside down in a car and you've got sorry, that's another that's completely different like context because that doesn't happen in the film. But at the same time, it's very, um, you know, we have this fantasy image of like, oh, you can fight back against uh, these terrible people. You can you can do these things. And this is like all about you. This is, you know, this is going to happen to you at some point in your life. But no, A, it's very rare. And B, if it happens, you're fucked. That's just the reality of life. Because it's uh, far more to do with with your, you know, your ability to do things to another human being. It's far more, you know, a guy without a gun who is willing to and able to inflict hideous injuries on another human being is at a disadvantage over a normal person who's never done anything like that and can't imagine themselves doing like that, who's, who's holding a gun. Right. Well, and uh, in the in the sequence, the wife, uh, you know, she's sitting and watching TV, and this guy comes in in a mask, that, you know, and, and yeah. comes out with a with a crowbar and looking in, you know, with his eyes cupped, and she just kind of sits there like, oh, what's going on? Because I mean, I I'd fucking do that. My immediate response would not be, this guy's about to break in and kill me, you know, especially yeah. in the middle of winter mm-hmm. in Michigan, you know, or in yeah. North Dakota, you know, like, or in um, you know, Minnesota. because. Things like that just don't happen. You know, they do, of course, but for most of us, most of the time, they don't. People are often tempted to see that scene, particularly, I think, as sort of rather mean-spirited comedy, you know, at at Mrs. Lundergaard's expense. I think that's very mistaken, actually, because I think think that even that scene is very much on her side. I think think most of us would just sort of gawp idiotically and think... What's what's going on? What does he want? You know, well, and, we- and she does the right thing. She immediately runs upstairs, grabs a phone, and starts dialing nine one one, which is yeah. absolutely about the smartest thing she could do in that moment. She even bites the guy. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. she, she, fights. she she really she fights. fights. She fights back in a very coherent and a very like really straightforward way. And then again, when they kind of get her in the uh, when finally she's free again, she tries to run away despite being you know bound and and hooded. Which is a really heroic thing to be doing, quite honestly, to to say I will, I need to get away from this, regardless of what happens to me from that point forward. Just mm. the thought of like, you know, because it would be very easy to just, you know, kind of hope for the best. 
Um, yeah. I think she's portrayed very well, but I think, you know, hold on, people people don't take seriously the uh, woman who's being victimized in a film on the, in, yeah. in the commentary? No, <laughs> that never happens. That never well, what, what happens is that the Coens are accused of making fun of her. You know, it's, it's dark comedy at her expense, <clears throat> which I think is a serious misreading of the film, actually. I think if anybody is ridiculed in this film, it's Jerry and Showalter and Grimsrud. Right. Um, I think because they are they are definitely portrayed as the as the ones who've got something wrong with them. Um, I think the, the father-in-law is even more, but that goes into my thematic reading of the film. So. Well, yeah, the, the father-in-law is kind of the... Well, I mean, he's not responsible for what anybody else does, but he is kind of the fount of the whole problem because he's, he's exactly the kind of horrible power figure that Jerry aspires to be and can't be. You know, so Jerry measures himself against that false idol and, and sees himself as a failure, and that's basically the, the source of the entire clusterfuck, isn't it? Because Wade is such a... <laughs> absolute bastard yeah. um, he, he's not a murderer you know this, another thing people say about this film is that it's, it's simplistic it's a simplistic morality tale I think that's totally wrong as well because there's all sorts of levels in this film you know you can say this, Wade is an absolute bastard he, he, he never kidnapped somebody or just murder them I'm sure but he's probably done a, a huge amount of harm you know emotionally to, to, the, to the family that he dominates and probably structurally to people's lives by being this horrible uh, you know business guy capitalist son of a bitch yeah, you know? yeah. Him, him and his partner there they when, when they discover that uh, uh, the deal that uh, Jerry presents them isn't quite the deal they thought he was presenting he, they, they, just, they still decide well you won't mind if we take this away from you though Jerry because we're interested mm. in pursuing this ourselves yeah, we're just going to fuck you over, Jerry, and you're going to take it and like it, you know. And God knows how many people Wade's done something like that to in his life. You know, he's probably wrought as much misery as any of the overt criminals in the film. Oh, many, many more times. I mean, yeah. given that he's been doing this for decades. At least as much, you know, yeah. If I'm only getting bank interest, I want something way better than what I'm seeing here. FDIC, even. I'm yeah. not seeing anything like that here. And Jerry, he aspires to be Wade, and he does that same sort of thing on a small level because you have that scene where he fucks a poor couple over selling the car by giving them oh, the true coat. coat scene. Yeah, yeah, that they didn't want. Yeah, but he's so unctuously bad at it. He's so transparent. Yeah. He just hasn't got it in him, you know. But it, it, that's his definition of success. That's his definition of masculinity and potency, and you know that's how you get respect. You get to be like Wade, uh, which is a horrible, you know, twisted view of the world but it's a view of the world that makes sense in his context and it's and you're right it's 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 the source of it's the source of everything he does in the film you know it leads to the you know he's doing it because he's desperately in debt and he's desperately in debt because he's been running this con scheme whatever it is with the with the car license plates you know he's just it's one fuck up leading to another fuck up and he's trying to get ahead and he's he's never going to <laughs> yeah and by the way apparently that uh, whole conversation where he's uh uh, selling the car with the uh, the true coat. Um, apparently, that actually happened to one of the Coens, almost ver verbatim. Uh, yeah. they were they were <laughs> they were a victim of that. <laughs> well, I've I've had conversations like that with people. You know, I've I've had salesmen on the phone, or, or you know, I think we all have, haven't we? We've all yeah. been in that situation where somebody's trying to sell you something, and you, you you're trying to get away from them, or trying to make them understand that you don't want it, and they don't want to listen because they can't, because it's their yeah. job to not listen. You know, I, keep, I keep... worked in electronics retail sales. For long enough that i was on the other side of that conversation too many times yeah well this is this is the thing when it happens to me i always get overwhelmed by this feeling of sort of 
you know, uh, empathy for the person who's causing me the problem. Which I is, think, of course, one of the ways that they manipulate you. That they then yeah, use against you. <laughs> yeah, because Lundergaard puts on his best pathetic, just totally browbeaten look and it's like yeah i'm so sorry i mean i have to do this and i can maybe knock a hundred dollars off it for you if i talk to my boss and of course he doesn't have a boss because he's actually the manager there at that place <laughs> well and you got to think like how much of a commission is he you know on a you know twenty thousand dollar car it's a five hundred dollar add-on so yeah. you got to think like what he's making an extra like 20 bucks off of this or some you know some yeah uh, even less it's totally just based on a you know, I assume that they've got some kind of, uh, you know, bonus commission base where, you know, they, they want you to have a certain percentage of your sales to have this true code edition or something just based on the uh, yeah, being on the be other some that corporate money. bullshit tied up with it. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. We want this percentage to go up because if that percentage goes up, then that means that some other thing is also going up because we're tracking a metric, which is based on that. And so therefore yeah. you have to sell this true coat to somebody who doesn't want it based on some mythical metric that doesn't even matter anyway. And you <laughs> support a system ter- that's fundamentally immoral. So yeah. <laughs> He's probably terrified of having the conversation. You know, he's at some point, if, if he doesn't get these percentages where they should be or somewhere near where they should be, he's going to have to have this conversation with Wade, isn't he? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why aren't these, why aren't, you're not doing very well. You're doing, you're not doing the job. I put you in there to do this job and you, you're not doing it. And, you know, Wade is an emotionally abusive bully. And Jerry is so, probably yeah. terrified of him because he also married yeah. married his daughter, right? So how does Jerry? How does a man like Jerry end up married to the daughter of a man like Wade? He's he he's you see he uses her as a tool in this film. He's been using her as a tool the whole time. She's yeah. she's never been anything more than a way for him to get at Wade. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he uses whatever little base con man tricks that he actually knows and suckered her into a marriage. And yeah, yeah and the more and more you, you go through the film and the more times you see it, you just realize what a fucking nasty little shit Jerry Lundergaard really is. <laughs> like he's just, he is just a piece of fucking filth. Yeah. And then when they arrest him at the end and put him in cuffs, he starts crying. Like starts a crying little like kid. A, like a baby. Yeah. Like and a toddler. You just know. He's, he's, he's wailing. Yeah. And you just know that those tears are all for himself. Yeah, at that moment, he's not feeling remorseful about the about the wife who died or any of the people that fell in the you know as collateral damage in this absolute clusterfuck that he yeah, initiated. Yeah, his, his abandoned son, you know, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, those tears are all for him. Yeah, and uh, and and you you see how stupid he is too because the name he registered was was Jerry Anderson. So he still used his first <laughs> fucking name when he when he tried to go on the lamb. Absolutely dumb. Let's move from the disreputable people in this and go to marge gunderson because uh goddamn what a hell of a performance and what a hell of a character i just love watching her character unfold in this because again as i was saying the movie kind of sets you up as like okay everybody in this is kind of simple and laid back and kind of rubbish but she's not at all like she is laid back and she knows who she is, but she's incredibly smart. As you watch it more times, every repeat viewing, you you just more and more appreciate that she's constantly thinking about this case. She's constantly thinking about the leads. And there's this crucial scene with her, and it's the scene with um, uh, the Asian fellow, uh, Mike... Mike Yamagita. Yeah. That is another absolutely crucial scene in the film. Which uh, I think a lot of people mistake as just being like just some weird little character piece that's out of place. But it's not because this is where she realizes that 
the first time she talked to Jerry Lundergaard, she had misread him and that he is actually, you know, emotionally unstable and, and she didn't pick up the signs the first time. And then that's what leads her back to uh, going after Jerry again. Well, it's actually the, the the phone conversation she has quite a bit later in the film, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. she learns that Mike Yanagita is full of shit. He's actually a stalker who was not married to this woman who didn't die. Uh, he was just basically stalking her. And I think we're meant to then retrospectively read that scene in the in the cafe, actually, as him sort of scouting out his next his next stalking right. victim. I think, of course, she well, shuts him was, down. She's she's in town. He's he's trying to like play a sob story on her and get her to fuck him i mean yeah. he's essentially he's essentially one of the like i've been he's trying to game. sell her a layer of true coat <laughs> and the true coat is on my penis that's the yeah uh, <laughs> oh geez i always liked you margie i always liked you margie well margie you know i always like honeywell you could do a lot worse as an engineer you could do yeah. a lot worse i can I, the the minnesota nice is actually an accent i could do fairly reasonably but i've lived in michigan for nine years so <laughs> A lot of the oh, youpers, yeah. a lot of the youpers, kind of sound like that. And it's it's funny. He actually uh, the same guy voices a character in the show The Venture Brothers that has a lot of the <laughs> same uh, a lot of the same ideas behind him as far as being spurned uh, in high school by a high school sweetheart and then sort of putting on this pattern of uh, stalking women. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you notice he he does this thing where he says, you know, I want to uh, let me come over there to that side, and then he comes yeah. over and then he puts his arm around her. She says, no, I prefer it if you were over there. And then she has to, like, cover it because, you know, right. patriarchy. And she says, no, 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 just because of my neck, you see. Just because my neck is, I just it's easier to see you if you're over there. I mean, she's trying to shut him down, but she has to do it in this, like, very polite way. Despite, like, I have no doubt that Marge Gunderson could, like, take this guy down. You know? Oh, yeah, she can put him in one punch, yeah. yeah. Um, but still, she has she has the need to be nice, in in, in quotes, you know. Um yeah. Well, she's that's because she's normal, you know, and and yeah. most most normal people they don't want to. We don't want to cause anybody any any offense or any upset, you know. That's just what people are like almost all the time, you know. You don't want to upset somebody even when you're rejecting them. I think that's it's just a normal human way to behave. I think it's 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 one of the things this film continually riffs on. I mean, when Mrs. L- Lundergaard doesn't react immediately to the guy with the balaclava outside her window, <laughs> it's because. You know, most of the time things are normal and she's a normal person. And in the normal world of normal people, things like, you know, kidnappers smashing your window and walking, that just doesn't happen. So yeah. it takes her a second to catch up with what's going on. The, the moment she catches up is actually when the, the crowbar goes through the window. And that's sort of the shattering of normality. And I think it's the same thing with Mike. You know, it's when she gets the phone call. It's like someone stuck a crowbar through that window. And that it leads to this this chain of thinking. I don't actually agree with you that, that Marge is particularly smart. I think she is smart. But I think she's normally smart. I think she gets there because she's just normally smart and and decent and good at her job. You know that, which is one of the great things about the film. It's she she's completely unremarkable. And cops in in dramas are almost always sort of remarkable in some way. They're almost always well, geniuses. I, I or don't. I don't. Tough guys I, or something. I don't think she's a genius. I think she's in that like you know one standard deviation above. Like if we're she's going the, to, well, if we're she's going the to, chief of police in a town, so she's obviously good at her job. Right, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. perhaps I perhaps I worded it incorrectly. Um, I'm just I'm just saying that she's she's smart enough to know that she can be wrong, and she thinks yeah. things through, and and she reconsiders she, her 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 opinions and ideas. She's a hell of and, a lot better at being a police detective than I would be, you know, because it's her job, and she's trained for it, and she's had loads of experience, and she's got a good at it. But she is fundamentally a normal person. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's what I'm. I think that's what I'm trying to go for. Unlike almost every cop you ever see on television. Well, right. she's also she's also you know one of the. Can we talk about the police work in this movie? Mm-hmm. I love the police work in this movie, and especially since I recorded the uh, RoboCop podcast with Kit Power. Link below if Lee has any uh, authenticity in him as a podcast Shh. host. <laughs> oh my god! Edit, edit, edit. <laughs> Um, because, you know, Kid said to me, you know, like, so in so many movies, you know, we get this idea that, like, the police's job is to prevent crime. That's not what the police do. What the police do is they basically follow the breadcrumbs until they finally catch up with somebody, hopefully. And that's exactly what happens here. I mean, essentially, she follows standard police procedure. I mean, if you just traced the logic of the investigation, it's completely a by-the-books investigation. Okay, I found a number that was called to this thing. There are two numbers. So she goes in and talks to two people, Jerry Lundegaard and Shep Proudfoot. She has conversations with them. That's kind of based on the thing. Then you get the tip that's based on the only reason she even finds the guy is the tip from the guy who says, you know, oh, so I called it in. And then she's just driving around this lake looking for a burnt umber Sierra. Hmm. That's the only reason ultimately that she finds this guy is because she's just tracking this tip. And Hmm. if, she had if she thought though that's nothing this guy doesn't know anything or i'm too busy or i've got three other cases on my desk there's no way i mean this guy would have gotten away and maybe like 10 years later he says oh yeah he's caught by somebody else and says oh yeah i also killed the guy in the wood chipper (laughs) and you know like yeah in a um, a lesser in a lesser movie she'd be investigating all the cases she'd be investigating the, the triple homicide she'd also be investigating the kidnapping and she'd be investigating all this other stuff connected to the to uh, the main crime, you know that that would be like the lazy written version of this, where she's the super cop, like trying yeah. to piece it all together. That's right. And she was, you know, first in her class at the academy, but she decided mm-hmm. she wanted to be a local cop because something happened. You know, she made a mistake and a kid died. Yeah, and now yeah. she's <laughs> now she's drinking too much because of the things cops see, you know, and all uh, I just it's so refreshing to get a depiction that isn't that, you know. Oh, I can't wait for the homicide laugh on the streets podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Coming twenty seventeen. Also, the I, I think I like the relationship between her and her husband too. Oh, isn't that gorgeous? And yeah. uh, I, I like how the, uh, the the Coens have said that a lot of people sort of misread the relationship too, where it was like this like intentional reversal of like uh, some idea of a traditional marriage or whatever. When they sort of made up on their own the backstory that they were both probably cops at one point, and she was just better at the job, so. That allowed him to quit and pursue his real passion, which is painting stamps. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite moments is when she has to get up and she says, no, 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 it's okay. Go back to sleep. You don't have to get up for a while. And he says, I'll make you some eggs. I'll make you some eggs. Because yeah. yeah. that is, I mean, I'm, I'm a married man. That's total. If my wife had to get up at three in the morning and go out into the cold and investigate a homicide, I would absolutely make her eggs before she left. (laughs) Particularly if he's working for home and doing the painting and and all that other thing. It's, uh, yeah, I I love that character. And he's such a, I mean, it isn't, I mean, death of the author, right? We can kind of go, yeah, it's a reversal because in a traditional crime picture and a traditional, you know, kind of um, cop movie, it would be this like badass dude with a square jaw who looks a lot like Bruce Campbell going out and <laughs> investigating the crime, and then he's got a uh, a nice uh, homey woman at home who makes him eggs in the morning. Yeah. Thanks, baby. I'm gonna go out and like 
catch the bad guys for you because I love you, you know, and that's what cop movies are like. And this is this is a much more like she goes out. Well, I, I told you that I saw this on the same day, literally just either before or just after I saw Seven, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. What's the, the the Gwyneth Paltrow Brad Pitt relationship in that? Yeah, you know, they, I mean, there you the, go. The, this this film is almost a response to Seven a year early. It is. Yeah, yeah, I, I I love their relationship. I love the business at the end where you know he talks about his mallard only getting on the three cents stamp, you know, and she says, "Well, no, people use the three cents stamp all the time." It's such a it's such a lovely. It's so symbolic for for what this film is getting at, which is that you know, yeah, it's the it's the it's the normal ordinary things. It's the unremarkable things that just make the world function, you know, and the, the, in many ways it's the, it's the normal unremarkable people just getting by and, and being good at their jobs, you know, and just being decent, just being human that just makes, it causes everything to keep ticking on for, for good or ill. The world does keep ticking on and it's people like this that do it. And it's things like, you know, seeing a beautiful picture of a mallard on a, on a three cent stamp, that isn't the most highly priced stamp, but you still need it. You know, yeah. it, it's it, it's it's a lovely little. It, it's so beautifully done and so subtle. You know, it's it's driving this point across, but you never you never feel like you're being preached to. I mean, that's why that's why this film doesn't come across as. You, you could read this film as being quite conservative. You know, being sort of misty eyed about down home folks and their their small town wisdom and all that. So I think it's actually a lot more complicated than that. I think it undermines that as much as it supports it. But the the main reason you don't get that feeling from it is that it's it's resolute non-preachy you know yeah it doesn't it doesn't preach and it doesn't exploit at least not to a massive degree it doesn't really exploit the uniqueness of this culture and the people in it it it, it doesn't use it as a gimmick i think some people might read it that way where they oh you know that's the funny movie where they talk in funny accents and solve crimes and stuff it's like no it it treads a very fine line doesn't it but i think it always goes on the right side of it yeah uh i mean because it would have been very easy very very easy to make this like a some sort of substandard version of uh, you, you know the the guys who did this is Spinal Tap like one of their uh, one of their films like some oh sort of... Christopher Guest that's the reference I needed in my synopsis ah there we go <laughs> uh, yeah this 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 feels like it should very much could have fallen into like a really tacky third rate version of Best in Show or whatever, right? You know, like it's very easy to imagine a, a bad version of this where it's yeah. like a Best in Show North Dakota Crime Edition. You yeah. Know, you know. Well, this is uh, where the, the artistry comes in, you know, because to do something this delicate, it's a very delicate operation and to pull it off completely successfully when you had to really balance it on a knife edge and it could have gone the other way, it just slips an inch, you know, and it turns into parody and it becomes something quite mean spirited and petty. You know, that shows a, a really highly developed level of craft. Yeah, the the amazing thing with the Cohen's writing here is it, it comes out in the fact that you know if you've done any sort of reading on how they make films, that they don't allow a lot of improvisation in their in their films. So a lot of the stuff that you would sort of probably chalk up to uh, the actors themselves improvising generally is not them improvising. It's really how the Coens wrote this. So it makes it even more amazing that they get those little character details, those little mannerisms so perfect and so just authentic feeling Mm. that just it it makes it feel like it's not true that they're lying and they said oh no we let these actors improvise all 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 through it well the the whole film is shot through with this 
weird feeling of intense authenticity i think um it, it, it i mean loads of people have believed that the the um the deadpan declaration at the st- at the start that it's based on a true story um right. and it's very easy to fall into that trap because you there are times when you feel like you're watching a fly on the wall documentary and and yet it also has that slightly carnivalesque slightly parodic slightly grotesque manner that that coen brothers films often have and i think it's not actually a contradiction i think how they get it to work how they make it so authentic feeling so real feeling is precisely by heightening things just enough so that you know i mean they've actually said about the declaration at the start based on a true story they did that so that people would accept more than they otherwise oh, would. oh yeah i mean you you put enough plausibility into the start of your film you can start selling them on the more implausible stuff and and yeah. they don't go super implausible at all in this film i mean it still feels very believable none of it's implausible but a lot of it's very heightened you know like the yes. girls at the bar and uh, and 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 the accent is heightened it is it is a real accent but it's a heightened mm-hmm. version of the accent and everything's just up just a couple of notches you know oh i i, I know people who who talk with pretty much that accent yeah oh yeah <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I met a girl in Min- who was from Minnesota who moved to Alabama who basically had that exact accent that the uh, two girls who uh, I found out uh, 15 minutes before we started recording because I was googling things and yeah, kept, uh, one of them, <laughs> one of them is the dialect coach. So Wikipedia says IMDb does not credit her with that. So we're going to kind of we're going to have to check that. We're going to have to find that out. I, next episode, I will probably do a deep dive on the internet to discover if she ever works as a dialect coach. <laughs> but I, as, I as I do, as I do the research afterwards. You do the research, yeah. You do it either before or after <laughs> or even during, but at least you do it. I mean, that's something. Yeah, I mean, you uh, know. No, um, and, and I love those I love those two characters because, like, yeah. despite, I mean, I'm from, I'm from Alabama, not Minnesota, but I know those people. Those those are those are the two girls hanging out at the bar. Oh, I mean, we we talked about this in the previous episode where we know these people, the the, the sort of the rural backgrounds that both you and I share. Mm. Yes. Well, I I live in a rural part of the United Kingdom, and I know these people too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the 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 trick is with this sort of thing is to make it more specific, and therefore it becomes more general. And that even though. Go Bears doesn't mean anything to me. Like, I understand that it would be Crimson Tide or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. from from where I'm from. And I totally could recognize these two women as being people I went to high school with who just never left my hometown. Yep. You know, or people that I might sit next to at a bar here in, here in where I live now. It's not like I live in some big metro, metropolitan area. <laughs> you, big, it is. you big city slicker, you urbane <laughs> motherfucker, you. Although I may live in the largest metropolitan area of anyone in this in this podcast, <laughs> you might you might well do. One of the, the other things that this film is often accused of is sort of being arch and mocking um, about these these sorts of people. And again, I think that's completely wrong. I think it is it is poking fun. I think there is mm-hmm. an element to which it's kind of putting people under a microscope and and inviting us to have a bit of a giggle at their at their foibles and their funny ways and so on. But I think it's all of us. You know, I think that's what it's getting at, because it shows us, I mean, look at the things that are kind of presented to us in the film as kind of a bit grotesque and a bit funny. I mean, there's it's sex and eating and well, we all do that. 
Yeah. You know, are we, are we supposed to laugh at them because they look funny when they have sex? Everybody looks funny when they have sex. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you, uh, newsflash. You're, uh, all, all you guys out there, you're not uh, Peter North, and all you ladies out there, you're not all Sasha Gray. It's just, yeah. you know. Statistically, most of us are funny looking, you know? Yeah. I'm pretty funny looking, but uh, not when I have sex. I'm a god. Ah, okay. <laughs> That's you're what you of, think. You're one of the exceptions. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I am the exception, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I okay, do watch okay, Johnny Car. I do watch. I do watch old episodes uh, on YouTube of Johnny Carson's Tonight Show afterwards. That's oh, the, uh, well, yeah. I mean, everyone does. Yeah, based on a after sex, it's it's the new it's the new cigarette. Set <laughs> the, the, of a cigarette. You watch Johnny Carson's Tonight Show on YouTube. Yes, very very socially con- conscious. Don't show the kids any smoking on screen because they might I, either. Either that, or you get a huge Native American car mechanic to come in and whip you with a belt. Yeah, because that's what they all do. So, should we talk about race in the film, or should we just leave that completely aside? <laughs> I, I don't. don't I don't really have much to say about it, except that yeah. I can see how it's open to a you know a, a, a reading. That, that... So, so rural Minnesota is overwhelmingly white, and so yeah. there is that justification. That said, there is uh, there are two people of color in this film. There is Shep Proudfoot, who is I think a great character. He doesn't have much to say, but I think he's he's very well executed in that kind of in his few scenes. And then there's a black dude who comes out of one of the other rooms in the little uh, hooker hotel or wherever he's staying. <laughs> where uh, after. Oh, right. After he's beaten the shit out of, after he's thrown Carl over the bed naked, where you probably see a little bit of taint, which is, I think, great. And then he basically throws this guy against the walls a few, and then, like, it's just kind of over. Those are the two people of color we see in the film. Yeah, and, I mean, you can also sort of tack on the fact that these people only appear in the, you know, the most sleazy ratbag hotel as well. So that's where all those people hang out, apparently. But I, I I don't think the movie... Well, I will defend it to the degree that and I'm, I'm not trying to make a criticism, but I will definitely defend it to the degree that what it does is portray who is Shep Proudfoot. He's a guy who whatever his background, whatever he is, whoever he is, he got into crime. He is the lowest of the low. He's an auto mechanic and an auto dealership. Yeah. And he was at some point approached by uh, Jerry Lundegaard as a contact for dudes who would kidnap his wife. Mm-hmm. Meaning, okay, maybe he has a, he has a criminal record. We know he has a criminal record, so he got hired despite that, or maybe they get some tax benefit or whatever. But he's got working at the lowest rungs of society, essentially. Although mm-hmm. working as an auto mechanic in a car dealership is not the lowest, which is realistic in this part of Minnesota. Completely realistic that this is what the local Native American population is doing. They are committing crimes because they are economically desperate. And they end up doing whatever kind of low-wage work they can get their hands on. Right. He's probably the most badass, quote-unquote, character in the film. And that well, he, resists, he... he resists the questioning for much longer than anybody else in the film would have. Yeah, well, he's, <laughs> he's, he's obviously much more seasoned. He's obviously probably seen he, a lot more. He's the professional. I love that Steve yeah. Buscemi is in this and Reservoir Dogs is a reference because, you know, Steve Buscemi is not the professional in this film. No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> Chip Proudfoot is the professional. Well, you see how you see how irritated Proudfoot is by everyone he's in contact with. He's obviously more pissed off by the fact he's stuck in the situation he is and he has to deal with these petty, shitty criminals when he should be dealing with in a heist gang somewhere with some professionals, right? You yeah, know? Well, and he's, and he's the, uh, the, the person he vouches for 
War, it's not Carl, it's Grimsrud. Mm-hmm. I vouch for Grimsrud. If Carl hadn't been involved, I have uh, no doubt that fewer people would have died. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I think if it had been Grimsrud and then someone like Grimsrud, maybe the wife dies. But like ultimately, I think that Grimsrud would have found his way, would have talked his way out of the ticket. You know, yeah. you know, I'll take care of it. Well, I was just going to say, I, I don't think there's a there's a problem with race when you take this film on its own. I think this film has a good, solid reasons for, you know, for what it does with with that. The the trouble is when you set it in the context of not only movies on the whole, but Coen Brothers movies in particular, because they are overwhelmingly about white people. You know, I, I it is a serious blind spot in the Coen Brothers, you know, work that I, I really wish they would get to grips with one of these days. Because this film you does hardly better than ever... most of them. Yeah, about huh? then. This film does better Coen, than yeah than any of them basically. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think maybe I think maybe No Country for Old Men's about the closest they get to or uh, 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 Old Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah, but um, what was I going to say? I forgot. Well, <laughs> what else is there to say? This is a great film. Yeah, if you I haven't, mean, you know, if we if we haven't convinced you by now, <laughs> you you fucking yeah. plebeians. Well, if you haven't fucking seen it by now, I mean, yeah, I don't been? know, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I don't know what's happening in <laughs> this world if they haven't seen it by now. But so, uh... so can I can I talk about like the first time I saw this film? I had I knew of it from Reputation, mm-hmm. and I knew of it as like oh uh, because the uh, in 1998 the AFI released their list of like the hundred greatest films, and uh, Fargo was the one film or one of two films from the 90s that were on the list, and it was number I think uh, it was somewhere in the 80s or something, but it was the most recent film. And it was Fargo and Pulp Fiction were the only two films that were on that list, you know. Right. Yeah. I'd never seen it, and so I knew it from Reputation, and then eventually rented it at the local like video place. Which, by the way, our younger listeners may not even realize that there was actually a time <laughs> when you could like go to a place and then rent a DVD and then return it the next day for four dollars. I should have I told this... the listeners, you know, my story of these videos being rented for me when I was sick. I should have given them that context because I keep forgetting that we're surrounded by whippersnappers who don't understand the concept of renting videotapes i mean what does yeah, that even mean yeah because I, I rented this on vhs i didn't yeah. i didn't rent it on D- dvd this is it like, you know i these these videos were rented for me when i was at college so we're talking we're talking 90 98 or something like that yeah. this is yeah this is one of the uh, actually funny enough two tapes that i severely damaged basically because i rented them so much were both coen brothers films it was this and the big lebowski I'm pretty sure I pretty much grooved all those tracking lines into my the copy of Fargo that I continuously rented, and I snapped the tape on the Big Lebowski twice, and of course, <laughs> but uh, I was such a good customer that they were nice enough. They were like, I, I was so apologetic. I was like, Oh, I'm sorry, I, the, this broke in my machine. Is like, it's all right. And they just took out a piece of Scotch tape and just taped it together and and, and wound it back in. I actually have an anecdote I can tell. The same video place where Reservoir Dogs, Fargo and Seven were rented for me that day when I was ill was just down, it was about halfway between my digs and college, university I mean to say. And the same rental place, I rented Orlando, the Sally Potter movie. Mm-hmm. so many times uh, eventually the guy who worked there and he said You're the, you've, re- you've rented this over and over and over again. You're the only person who ever rents it. Do you want to buy it? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I I had a goal of like wanting to work in a video rental place at one point in my life. And I couldn't find a video rental place that would hire me. 
which is the saddest <laughs> sentence I could probably ever say. No, I, I, I had that desire as well, and I think we, we were smart not to do it, Daniel, not to get that uh, that sort of uh, title, because imagine how sad we'd be knowing that, like, realizing a couple years later that we were on the tail end of that. and That, that their entire profession just yeah. disappeared. That that would have made me really sad because I I could see myself enjoying myself way too much working at a at a video rental store and to know that they've all but pretty much died out now, man, yeah. that would be crazy. It's funny. Somebody on Tumblr a couple of weeks ago they posted some photographs they because they actually found a blockbuster that was still oh. open. Wow. A great big like warehouse blockbuster rental place that was still open, and they they went in. At least this is what they say on the on the Tumblr post. They went in and they they took loads of photos of this empty, vast cathedral like still operational but apparently completely deserted blockbuster rental store. And but and they were very eerie. It was like something from The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and a lot of those big chain rental places were like that anyway. Because yeah. they would have way too much space and way too few shelves and way too many copies of a few movies. And, well, it was and always, it we, was always we didn't really on, have like, those in Britain, but I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, they had like thirty copies of whatever was the like most recent right. release, and uh, so you could always get that unless it was really popular. And then like, oh, you got to wait until like Tuesday. You know, it's like fuck. But uh, whatever, whatever you went in, which I always did for uh, whatever was a uh, a more obscure release, then uh, it was always there. And I remember, God, are we talking about video rental? Uh, we shouldn't <laughs> we shouldn't go into a, a detailed thing about this. But uh, yeah, no, it was it was a great era. I there was a blockbuster in my town until I guess 2011 or so. Wow. And then it just completely it just closed out, and now it's a T-Mobile store. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, vi- video rental places died out, and what I saw were, after that, in corner convenience stores, you'd get, like, uh, previously watched DVDs on a rack that were repackaged by these companies to, to sell, and mm-hmm. then even those disappeared. Very there, there, there's still a chain called Family Video that operates a couple locations in my town, but not near enough to me to make it work driving out and, to. And, and they're they're a niche uh, thing now. Like, uh, well, not so much vinyl record stores now because that's actually kind of blown up again. But they are they are in sort of the same level that vinyl record stores were, you know, like five ten years ago now. Like that's that's where they are. They're a niche thing. They're they're the thing that the hipsters go to now. Well, and like the idea, like back in the '90s, that this was like that you could go and talk to the dude, and sorry to use it in your language, but it's always it was always a dude who stood there and go, "Give me a recommendation for a movie." Who had seen everything, and and that was like the fantasy of what the experience was like. Well, that yeah, was why you wanted to be that dude, wasn't it? You wanted right. to, to you, you you wanted to go from being the student to being the master. Right, right, <laughs> and and you to, can to become and, the guru, <laughs> and you can use the dude. That's just the parlance of the times, Daniel. And now we're podcasters because we're just frustrated people. Because people don't change. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about twenty-year-old movies because, like, people still care. It's yeah. Crazy. What else can be said about Fargo? Brilliant fucking. Actually, actually, I will say one more thing. The okay. first time I watched this, I didn't. I I liked it. I didn't love it. Well, it wasn't I... until I watched it two or three times that I really like realized how great it was. Well, that makes one of us. 
I knew. I, I, have, to, I have to be honest. Is, if you'd asked is, me the day after I saw those first three films, you know, which which was your favourite, I would probably have said seven, um, oh. because I was an idiot. Um, but I, I I think the sort of underneath my own radar, this was Fargo was the one that made far deeper impression on me. Yeah, I, which I, 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 I maybe I just tell myself that, but uh, eh, I, I couldn't help love the, but love this film, especially just the performances and the, and the way the score just like really digs into you and sticks yeah. in the back of your head, and just <laughs> the winter sort of <laughs> iconography. Well, of, I was know. also I I also was in Alabama at that point. I'd never seen this much. Uh, snow right, you know, right. So, so so I didn't quite get that like that visceral experience. Now whenever I see like a big layer of snow, I always think Fargo. That's my go-to so, mental reference. So the first so the first time you saw it, you th- you thought all these people were Eskimos is basically what you're saying. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, the funny thing is, loads of that snow is actually it's 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 created snow because yeah. it was it was about the warmest winter that Minnesota had ever had when they filmed that by sheer and bad luck. It, isn't that? Isn't that seem to be the the running story for almost every movie that involves a lot of snow that they filmed in the hottest winter of ever? You know, like fucking, we had to make our own snow and import ice. And I, I think it. I think the reality is they just assume there's going to be snow, and then really, you can't ever assume there's going to be a snow because they know. had to, they had to. I, I forgot to mention it in our previous episode. They had to do that as well for a simple plan. They had to make their own fucking snow. They had, to, they had to. They had to move some of the shooting. Yeah. And, uh, in a simple plan, and I think in Fargo as well. They did that they had in to Fargo move it to too. The yeah. location, just to just to be able to uh, to have big expanses of snow. Yeah. Which, well, you know the the scenes on the road where um, Showalter and Grimsrud commit the the triple murder, the cop and the two passers-by, the place where they shot it in the night shoot. That's actually a different stretch of road to where they shoot the day stuff with Marge and and the cops finding the finding the bodies and the crashed car yeah. because they, they could shoot the stuff at night just wherever they wanted. But of course for the day shoot they had to, I think they had to go to, up to North Dakota to uh, shoot right. that on a completely different stretch of road. And there's, right. I think the, the wonderful stuff in the, in the car park those amazing shots of the pure white blanketed car park, you know, um, that's all snow that the production team had had to create from um, mashing up great big block blocks of ice overnight because right. it was just too it was too dry well and you got to think like whenever they do a second take you know and that's that's the thing well, they, that's yeah. the reason you don't see more snow in films if you ever do a second take you've got to then go and like layer and sit out yeah you got to yeah. fix like, it all it level yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there's oh. actually there's loads of the takes in fargo are just single takes they're the only takes that were ever taken of of this shot or that shot for precisely that reason one of my favorites of those is probably the uh, shot of Carl driving the car in the uh, car in the in the airport car car parking lot. Yeah, where you could tell, like, yeah, you know, they only shot this once. This is, <laughs> this is some stunt driver right. driving, and he's <laughs> pretending to look for the, you know, like, you know, there's no way they covered all that area with <laughs> fake yeah. snow for three retakes. Though this is one take. Yeah. Uh, budget for this was seven million, and box office was twenty-four million. And of course, it's probably made a lot more money since then. And that was just domestic, by the way. They they made tons of money overseas. The Coens tend to make a lot more money overseas on some of their films, anyways. And interesting enough, they're generally pretty successful in most of their films. Most of their films do tend to make money, so uh, good for them. Uh, especially for those being are low... sellouts. Well, no, because they're low because they're low budget filmmakers. People don't seem to realize what low budget filmmakers they actually are. I mean, seven million—that's low budget for nineteen ninety six. 
That's very um, low. I mean, I think in the last episode you said a simple plan was what seventeen million. Yeah. 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 And and with with vaguely equivalent you know, production values. Yeah. yeah. But there's you know except for like the uh, the snowmobile maybe and uh, some of the you know the plane and Gary Cole. I'm sure Gary Cole had a had a huge salary. You know. Uh, but you know, like one of their few really big box office bombs was actually the Big Lebowski. <laughs> but uh, that's because it's yeah, kind of no, a terrible the... movie. Yeah. Huh? Um, it's what? Sorry. That's because it's kind of a terrible movie. You fuck oh. you. Uh, just, just, just saying. <laughs> fuck you. Um, I, DVD. I, and... I, I'm. I'm completely incapable of being objective about that film anymore. It could be a terrible movie, and I wouldn't know. Literally. I would be unable if to tell. If it was terrible, um, I would. If it was terrible, I wouldn't care. <laughs> I still love it I, unconditionally. So that's. I'm that's kind I of over it. it, you know. I, I'm kind of over the Big Lebowski. I'm, I'm sort of at the moment. I don't feel any desire to ever watch it again. That might change, but um, I, I think maybe. I, you know. I didn't see the Big Lebowski until 2010, and I only saw it with two people who were obsessed with it and quoted every line ahead of time. Yeah. And, Therefore, my experience of that film was definitely not what the filmmakers intended. But like, I was thoroughly unimpressed. And then the more I read Raymond Chandler, the less impressed I became. So <laughs> I, I think it's did. one of those. There you go. The end of the the end of them. They must be destroyed. <laughs> this is their Yoko moment. This is it. This is it. Episode ninety four is or ninety two. Whatever this is, is the last one. You can't even get the episodes right. You're fired. <laughs> Um, oh, I wish you'd gotten to 99 just before the uh, the big yeah, zombie the commentary. Well, 99 is going to be Jackie Brown, so that's I got to stick around at least for that. That would be a good one to end on, though, if we did. But you know, not going to okay, happen. Okay, well, we'll we'll get to listen to your slow, bitter divorce. Right. <laughs> uh, d- DVD info for this. You can get what I have, the uh, Coen Brothers movie collection from MGM in 2007, which collects uh, basically. All their movies right up to Fargo, basically. Or you can get a single-disc DVD or Blu-ray of Fargo in 2009, also released in 2014 as well. If you get the Coen's Brothers movie collection, you get a bunch of great films, and you get the special edition version of Fargo, which is really good. It's got a bunch of really neat supplements on it, and uh, so I would recommend it if you, if you want to pick that up. Uh, anything else anyone want to mention, or can we... Well, this is one of those films you could, you know, you could literally just talk forever about. But uh, yeah, I think we've, I think we've covered it. Most of the, most of the big ones, anyway. Okay. Well, uh, then in that case, Jack, uh, please tell people where they can find you and uh, what you've been doing lately in those places that they can find you. Right. Well, uh, I blog under the uh, the banner of Shaboon Graffiti, which is S H A B O G A N. I know that doesn't make any sense, but I'm stuck with it. And Shaboon Graffiti is part of Eruditorum Press. So if you Google one or either or both of those things, you will find me. Um, I'm on Twitter at underscore Jack underscore M underscore. Uh, and I not only write things regularly about all kinds of stuff, I do a semi-regular podcast in which uh, I talk to interesting people about things that they're interested in. And I'm also part of the Wrong With Authority podcast, which is a now ongoing regular series of uh, shows about movies, about history. And uh, there's somebody else around on this podcast who, who actually uh, who takes part in that with me, Daniel. I'm also a part of the uh, Wrong With Authority podcast. Uh, I'm mostly the guy who does the dry dissection of details. 
in the, the research, up, in other words. In the, in, the, in the upcoming episode, I'm going to talk quite a deal about credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations. Wow, so that's don't sexy, that, kids. But, but <laughs> so don't, sexy. But don't let that stop you from listening to the other guys on the podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. You can find all my other stuff at oispaceman.libsa.com. I do a podcast called Oispaceman with a lot of offshoots. We do Doctor Who. We do Red Dwarf. There's a Steven Universe thread. That's been a little bit slow lately because I haven't felt uh, worthy of editing anything. But, uh, yeah, we're going to start producing that more often again. So uh, go check it out. I, I should mention on my blog, I have written specifically about Fargo. Uh, I wrote a piece called Minnesota Normal, if, if you're interested in reading more of my thoughts about Fargo. Ah. And I also wrote about um, another Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, uh, which I called Minnesota something else. It was a while ago, so I can't remember the title. But uh, yeah, if you, if you go to my blog, you look for anything with Minnesota in the title, you'll see some stuff specifically about Coen Brothers movies. And I will, I will provide those links for anyone listening so uh, you can go directly to that stuff yippee yeah you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com you can find all of our links to itunes youtube and facebook join our facebook group they must be destroyed on site on facebook Place is that to... the best way to get in touch with you it's now that you mention it it is amazing i'm glad you brought right. that up although you know people don't take advantage of it that much don't be shy people i put out uh you know, a post there saying if you have any comments about the movies that uh, we're watching, feel free. Doesn't matter how stupid, doesn't matter how brilliant the comment is, we will read it and respond to it. We may mock you though, so that there is that danger. But um... problem is nobody really cares about Fargo anymore. Like it's it's a too obscure title. That's you know, for or, us. or everyone just oh yeah, that's a classic. Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, that, that's that's a true thing. Actually, some movies can become so completely enshrined as you know classics that people stop talking or thinking or watching watching them. Can't they? <laughs> can happen sometimes. Right. Oh, oh, you're going to talk about uh, on the waterfront again? Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. I, yeah. I think I think for our very last episode, we need to cover Citizen Kane. That needs to be like all right, uh. episode 294. <laughs> Citizen Kane. <laughs> this is it. We're old men. We're done. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, uh, thank you very much for joining us, Jack. It's always an absolute pleasure to have you every time. Thanks for having me. It was great fun. Again, uh, thanks for letting me come along and, and talk shit for, for a couple of hours. Uh, I'm, I'm always up to do that. So yeah, I'm, I'm always looking for willing victims who will, who will permit, permit me to do so. And uh, you guys keep on allowing me to do so. So yeah, uh, I love you. Yeah, Daniel and I are your subs anytime. Okay. <laughs> yeah that's uh, how that works right well i don't i don't i don't, I, don't I, I, won't, I won't speak for daniel anyway but uh there we go daniel's about to go off on one <laughs> it's fine don't worry I, I it's not like i was admire what was uh criticizing shep proudfoot's technique in the uh, belt whipping scene <laughs> oh you know? jesus christ yeah okay yeah, back and forth going didn't he it was i was admiring that a little of the in and out uh, yeah yeah um well, we should have done those with the clockwork orange. We failed. Oh, God. Uh, I, I, yeah, well, you know. Hey, clockwork orange is referenced in this movie, by the way, guys, in case you didn't know. Just just check it out. But, uh, yeah. Okay, thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, we're going to be back. I'm not sure exactly what the episode's going to be. It's either going to be with uh, Mr. Kit Power. In that case, it's going to be Night in the City and uh, White Heat. Or it's going to be The Driver and Drive. We'll see. But uh, until then, we are leaving. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to various podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Please join our Facebook group, as this is the best way to get in contact with us and to keep up to date with what's coming up on the podcast. We also can be found as part of the Oi Spaceman family of podcasts at oispaceman.com, where you can find various sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, Firefly, and classic sci-fi novels. If you decide to subscribe to us through iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a review. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>